BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Bowery Boys episode 150, Consolidation and the Making of New York City. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo's editors inspect and recommend the best budget hotels in Europe. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we are so happy to have you with us on our 150th episode. 150 episodes. This or Our sesquicentennial. Sesquicentennial. Or in dog years, that's 8,000 episodes. Oh, pity the poor dogs. <laughs> we have covered so much material in the past few years on this show in all of these episodes. Um, From Henry Hudson and the Have Moon. All the way up to the Robert Moses years, and we give him a special shout-out on this show. Episode 100, if you haven't already pushed your way through that <laughs> one. So we sat down and thought, well, what can we do for 150 that would feel and seem extra special, but would actually be maybe a story or something that we haven't really shed any light on thus far? And, you know, there were some big topics that came up that we haven't attempted yet. For example, the Empire State Building is a big one that people often bring up. But we decided instead on something that I think is more momentous than even the Empire State Building. That would be the consolidation of New York City, of Greater New York. The moment in time in 1898 where the five boroughs of New York City were officially formed. This event would secure New York's place as the largest and most important city in the United States and push it ahead of Paris to become the second largest city in the world. It's also important to note that this moment that today we feel like must have been so momentous really left a lot of people at the time feeling kind of ambivalent. Uh, some felt like they were losing their identity and others were worried that they were about to be taken for a ride. Let me go one step further, Tom, Please and do. say that this is also the story of how Brooklyn was basically dragged kicking and screaming into consolidated New York. So we'll go into that. We will argue these points mm -hmm. with each other as we move in and explore both sides of the consolidation debate. We'll visit all five boroughs in this show, the Bronx, Queens, Richmond... Brooklyn and Manhattan. So burrow down and make yourself comfortable as we tell the tale of the creation of Greater New York. So to begin this story, before we you know, jump into the, how they all formed this alliance that's called the Area of Greater New York, we need to kind of lay out where everyone is 
pre-1898. It's right, in essence, because yes. this would take place in 1898, right. this consolidation. So, but decades before, the city of New York was only the island of Manhattan. Right. All the land areas around had very specific situations, which I, well, get us into that, please. All right, well, let's just start with the basics, because there is a lot of ambiguity sometimes with the names New York, Manhattan, New York City. Look, the area that we call Manhattan today was New York. It was New York City before the consolidation of 1898, and it was, for the most part, the entire New York City. We'll get into why the specifics, for the most the semantics, part right. in a second. This traces back to 1686, when there was the Dongan Charter, which established the island of Manhattan as the city of New York. Interestingly, Greg, this charter also gave Manhattan more control over the East River than it did to Brooklyn. It gave Manhattan control over boat traffic. And this put Brooklyn at a distinct disadvantage um, and would develop the ways that these two cities would develop commercially. So keep that in the back of your mind. And to reinforce what you just said, yes, in fact, New York and Brooklyn, even in this period of time, even in the 17th century here, two separate developing cities. Right. And at the point of the consolidation, at the end of the 19th century, the main players then are the island of Manhattan, which is New York City, which had a population of about one and a half million in 1890, and by 1900 would have about two million people. Comparison, today Manhattan has 1.5 million. So, you know, it's roughly the same. mm -hmm. New York was the largest city in the country, beating out Chicago and then Philadelphia, Brooklyn, and St. Louis. Mm -hmm. New York was also the industrial, cultural, political, economic, manufacturing hub of the entire nation. So so this is all happening on Manhattan Island. Now, just north in the Bronx were a bunch of villages just across the Harlem River. Or the area we call today the Bronx, because it wouldn't have been considered Westchester County. Right, the villages in Westchester County. And for the most part, this area where today's Bronx is, for, for most of the period of time that we'll be discussing, it's farmland, it's it's estates, it's beginning to be cut up a little bit into you know more formalized grid systems, but still very primitive compared to New York. And mostly residential. And in the 1870s, some of these villages uh, would be annexed into New York City. 1874, Manhattan annexed the villages of Kingsbridge, West Farms, and Morrisania. And then in 1895, the rest of the area that was west of the Bronx River was annexed into New York. So if we're specifically talking about the situation in 1898, that's Mm -hmm. what's going on. Manhattan or New York had crept across the Harlem River and was now also encompassing these former villages. So as part of today's Bronx was actually already annexed, was already absorbed into what was called New York by the 1870s. With, with more villages in the 1890s, mm-hmm. yes. Now, a different situation was playing out just east of New York, across in the area that was roughly between the East River and the Atlantic Ocean. The first settlements started to appear in this area in the 1630s, small villages that were on the western end of Long Island. And in 1683, this area was named Queens County, named for Catherine of Braganza, who was King Charles II's queen <laughs> consort. So a literal royal touch to this area of essentially just sparse farmland. 
and it would remain mostly farmland right up to the point of consolidation. Some beautiful residences were, were constructed here, very opulent. It would remain also sort of inaccessible because there weren't really great transportation links to New York. And some of the significant towns in Queens County at this period were Jamaica, Flushing, and Long Island City. Now, meanwhile, often what we call today's Staten Island, they were doing their own thing. This area was settled by the British in 1664, and as we mentioned in our Staten Island podcast, named Richmond after the Duke of Richmond, who was the illegitimate son of Mm -hmm. Charles II. So another royal touch. Well, I mean, I guess the all, I mean, New York is named after the Duke of York, and Kings County, where Brooklyn is at, also has royal ties. And perhaps because of this, and because of the physical distance from New York, Richmond's politics were always a bit at odds with New York, and they were the most sparsely populated of of any of these areas that we'll be talking about. By 1900, there were only 67,000 inhabitants on the island, which then brings us to the last remaining city to talk about in this consolidation, Brooklyn. Now, unlike the areas that you just mentioned, which were sparsely populated, which were, you know, farms or manor houses, that's how it was dominated. Brooklyn, of course, was an actual, eventually a proper city in direct competition sometimes with New York. To back it up way back here, the area of Brooklyn, back at the end of the Revolutionary War, there were actually six separate towns that were in the area of today's Brooklyn total. Brooklyn, of course, being the biggest village, but then there were others by the name of Flatlands, Flatbush, Gravesend, New Utrecht, and Bushwick. Those would all be separate villages, almost up until the 1890s, but I'll get to that that in a little bit. In the late 18th century, just north of Brooklyn was another small planned town that would go by the name of Williamsburg. It would be based around a ferry terminal that was at the foot of Grand Street. Now, Williamsburg was originally considered part of the town of Bushwick, but by 1852, it would get its own city charter because, of course, a lot of the New York industries would come to Williamsburg, use that waterfront, mm-hmm. uh, use those, that pier system to build up factories. And I believe that they had a, a surplus of hipsters to work at these factories, too. <laughs> you know, a factory of skinny jeans back in the 19th right. century, of course. Now, when I say Brooklyn at this point, keep in mind we're talking just a town that was centered around today's Fulton Ferry area. So, so kind of Brooklyn Heights. Brooklyn Heights. Downtown. The, right. That area downtown uh, south of the Brooklyn Bridge today. That's what we're talking about when we talk about Brooklyn. It's considered New York's first commuter town because, of course, many businessmen lived there in what would be called Brooklyn Heights. You know, it actually became really desirable because as New York is developing up the island, you know how it rapidly expands and expands north. It would actually have been more difficult for people to get to if you were, say, if it was 1820 and you were living around the area of 30th Street, it would just be easier just to live across the water and take Fulton Ferry into work every morning. So it was actually a preferred place to live. Especially, right, if you were working just downtown, if you were a gentleman Mm -hmm. working on Wall Street. Now, in 1816, the village of Brooklyn became the town of Brooklyn. And quickly, by 1834, it then got a city charter to be the city of Brooklyn. And it seems that the people of the city of New York across the way were not really that enthusiastic enthusiastic about Brooklyn becoming its own city. So this is the first indication, the first foreshadowing, if you will, of uh, possible consolidation. Because New Yorkers, some New Yorkers, 
actually thought they looked ahead. They're like, well, it's going to be part of New York anyway, right? I mean, I, maybe this is a New York condescension. Well, I mean, it makes perfect sense. The city was expanding northward. Why wouldn't they just be expanding across the river? Well, but, you know, if you lived in Brooklyn by this time, they were already developing a, a sense of pride by, the, mm. uh, by this point. In 1845, Brooklyn actually passed a resolution, including the language, quote, the act of residing in the city of Brooklyn instead of the city of New York violates no one of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and I think you might be able to buy that on a t-shirt from Brooklyn Industries <laughs> oh, today. Very likely. Now, what's curious about this is that Brooklyn kind of grows through a series of mini mergers. And in fact, it's a very major mer- a major merger. <laughs> Remember that little neighboring city of Williamsburg, you know, right uh, right next to it? There was a stone wall between with the boundaries between Williamsburg and and Brooklyn here. So they were kind of growing up against each other. Something's got to give, of course. Well, in 1855, eventually Brooklyn and Williamsburg merged. They took down that wall. Took down that wall, ripped it down. And thus, by 1860, by the beginning of the Civil War, Brooklyn was the third largest city in the United States. And then, of course, basically wrote off Williamsburg by calling it the Eastern District for much of the late 19th century here, (laughs) which is amazing. Like the name Williamsburg for for a period of time almost went away. Well, t- I'll touch on this later, but essentially through the next few decades, Brooklyn would continue this sly annexation and absorb all of these other former Dutch towns, so Flatlands and Gravesend and everything. So New York had moved north, and Brooklyn was also moving north and east. Yes. And at about this time in the 1850s, 1857, the state actually moved in and decided that in some ways, these two cities, New York and Brooklyn, needed to cooperate on some levels of municipal activity. Well, I mean, that makes so much sense. I mean, imagine if you just had, to, for instance, ship materials and supplies. You have the two largest cities sitting right next to each other. Why wouldn't you have some things that shared? Right. So they merged the, the city's fire, health, and police forces together, which must have been something of a blow to some of the, the civic egos at play here. Mm-hmm. But you said 1857, Right, So that is around the same t- period of time that Brooklyn and Williamsburg themselves merged. It was around this time that conversations about the possible consolidations of area around the New York Harbor and East River here got brought back into the conversation. And as they did, it wasn't quite looked as fondly or as innocently as it might have been 20 or 30 years before. Because it was a threat, mm-hmm. too. Henry Murphy, who was a former Brooklyn mayor, predicted the consolidation in 1857, that same year, when he said, quote, It requires no spirit of prophecy to foretell the union of New York and Brooklyn at no distant day. The East River, which divides them, will soon cease to be a line of separation, and bestrode by the Colossus of Commerce will prove a link which will bind them together." As bestriding the Colossus of <laughs> Commerce here, yes. they just assumed that this was a natural direction that... Well, it, some it, of them assumed. It, it would be inevitable for some. But the consolidation movement basically it needed a spokesperson. It needed a figurehead out in front. So to step into the driver's seat is one Andrew Green. 
And he is the man most responsible, I would say, of anybody that we're going to talk about for the merging of all of these areas into one greater New York. And in fact, is referred to commonly as the father of greater New York. Do you know what else he's referred to as? This is what piqued my attention. More than one book calls him essentially a, quote, 19th century Robert Moses. Oh, did that catch your eye? <laughs> yes, it did, I think. <laughs> and it seems that he was. He mm-hmm. was a real civic leader, and he he was involved in city parks and city planning and city finances. He was on every kind of commission and board. He made um, very important decisions in, in the way that the city developed that would be echoed 50 years later by our friend Robert Moses. Yeah, I was going to say, who knows what he would have built had the automobile been around? Well, he did always stand up for the parks, but we're getting ahead of yeah, ourselves yeah, sorry, here. Okay. Wait, take us to the beginning of Ants. We need to know more about Mr. Green here to see how he fits in. Sure. He grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts on his family's estate, the sixth generation of Greens. He moved to New York at first to, um, he thought he'd attend West Point Academy, but he instead entered business. And after a couple <laughs> years um, in the trades, he went into law school and then joined the law practice of Samuel Tilden which is a pretty good practice to join. Mr. Tilden, who, of course, ran for president in the most contested election, I believe, of the 19th century. He would after, um, he would years later, that's true. uh So he started off in a really good place there. And from there kind of launched into his public career, which is incredible to consider everything that he touched. Mm -hmm. First, he got onto the school board, and then he was the head of the school board. But then he became the city's comptroller, straightened out the city's finances after all of the Tweed scandals that rocked the city Mm -hmm. and saw it robbed of hundreds of millions of dollars. So he reestablished, Green reestablished the city's credit rating, which is an incredibly important achievement. And if that wasn't enough, he was also on the Central Park Commission and became the president of Central Park. And he he looked for ways to expand the park while still protecting it and making it more accessible to the city's citizens. One of the ways was to bring culture to the park. And so in that capacity, he worked for and helped establish the Museum of Natural History. He was on the board of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and played a very important role in its placement right there on the park. Wow. And last but not least, he organized the plan to merge the Astor, Lennox, and Tilden libraries into the one entity uh, that we call the New York Public Library. I mean, did he perform at Castle Gardens in the (laughs) opera? Like, what couldn't he do? Yes, he juggled. He sawed women in half (laughs) on the stage. No, no, no. But everything else... He, He didn't like the fact that the library was to be located... Uh, at 42nd Street and 5th Avenue on the side of the reservoir. He had been told that the reservoir was still like perfectly good and could still be useful. And on that battle, he lost, obviously. But essentially, throughout the rest of the tale here, he's actually doing 25 other different things at the same time. He was, he was incredibly active, but he was always promoting and enthusiastic about the idea of the imperial city, the city beautiful. Mm-hmm. He was looking around to other great cities of the world. Again, parallels with Robert Moses here. Right. He had foresight. He was a man of incredible honor and respect. People knew that he was incorruptible at a time of great corruption. So he was seen as a very strong, stable figure in an otherwise crazy moment in the city's expansion. His nose was clean in an era of mass corruption. Oh, I I didn't know where you were going with (laughs) 
<laughs> with that one, Greg. <laughs> was that an outdated I, I, phrase? The cleaning your nose. No, I mean, I, mean, I should clean. trust you. I just, I, I thought you had, I thought you blew it. <laughs> so no, he was looking around at Paris. He was looking around at London. He saw how these other great cities were expanding. They were putting up these monumental arches. They were building these wonderful boulevards and these beautiful parks. He wanted New York to do the same thing. And one of the aspects of this was that New York had to get bigger. So in 1868, during the annexation of these first villages in the, in the Bronx mm-hmm. that we talked about, he first mentioned consolidation. He sort of dipped his toes in the consolidation waters mm-hmm. when he mentioned that he dreamed of bringing together the, the, quote, city of New York and county of Kings, a part of Westchester County and a part of Queens and Richmond, including the various suburbs of the city under one common municipal government to be arranged in department under a single executive head. I so mean, he basically nailed it. But a, but a far-reaching plan. And then to be proposed by someone who was so prominent, of course, this might have shook people out of a stupor. I th- Yeah, I, th- I think that it sort of spooked some people, too. Mm-hmm. So nothing really became a Green's plan in the 1860s. One quick note, we've already mentioned that, that New York would acquire these villages in the Bronx uh-huh. in, the, in 1874. That was through a vote that took place in 1873. There was debate in the city about whether or not to annex these villages, and the same debate would then carry over, the same themes would carry over into the, the debate that would happen with the consolidation. Mm-hmm. Because the Manhattanites were wondering, why should they subsidize these villages up in the Bronx? If, if these villages were brought into New York City, well, then they would have to get water, and they'd have to get other city services. You'd, 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 you'd build an infrastructure of the same sophistication as in New York. And now I should add that it's we're talking just these very specific villages that got uh, included, not all of the Bronx, because no, as I'll mention, step, right, yeah. but I'll mention later that some other villages of the Bronx were not so keen on this idea either. Right. But one group who was keen on this were the landed interests in Manhattan who were trying to get people to move further and further north in Manhattan Island. Remember, we're in 1870s. You know, if you go up to the Upper West Side and the Upper East Side, there's still not a huge amount of development up there. You would still have whole blocks that would have no buildings on them whatsoever if you were going further north. So by expanding into the Bronx, what you're doing is stretching the geographical borders of the city. The Upper West and Upper East Sides don't look so far flung anymore. Land values would go up as well because there would be new transportation links that would be brought mm-hmm. in. So so this was good for real estate, too. So when... When the vote came down in 1873, it passed overwhelmingly to take on uh, these villages from the Bronx. So New York is growing by this time. The thoughts of consolidation are in the air. People in Brooklyn have their ears perked. This would be a recurring conversation. This would be a political topic. This question of whether or not something bigger needed to be made of New York City. Well, what were some of the pros here? What were some of the the reasons that Green was giving out and some of these pro-consolidation business owners, for instance, and land, and land developers? Well, similar to this Bronx conversation we just had, um, it was sort of the way of the future. This, it was the way of this imperial city. It was for the common good because you could provide uh, more benefits, more parks, more services to people. It was the right thing for a municipality to do, to provide for its residents. So we should make the municipality itself bigger and bring more people into the goodness of the city. So there was a philosophical argument happening here. 
as a practical matter, at least if you were like in state government, mm-hmm. it made sense because you often had like many, many different disputes between these two cities. Right. Wouldn't it just be easier to solve those disputes if they were just one city? Because there were all these little just territorial disputes, private companies battling each other that would make its way through the courts that just those would dissolve if it was one gigantic city. So on a level of governance, it made sense because it was just more efficient. It also made sense because many of the New York business owners had all of their factories and their warehouses over there in the Eastern District and in areas around Brooklyn. And of course, a lot of people who lived in Brooklyn were going to work in New York. I mean, so there were really... Uh, like strong ties already right so it, it was kind of an obvious thing because it had it was already happening the two cities were functioning already as one metropolitan whole mm-hmm. but they just weren't really being recognized as one and so there was a fairness argument happening here too which was if this is already happening shouldn't the the benefits and the costs actually be shared by both of these communities was it fair that people slept someplace else and didn't pay taxes for the place where they worked? Not really, argued the Manhattanites. Well, and some of the more sarcastic New Yorkers even said, well, I mean, like, Brooklynites will say they're from New York when it's convenient. As a one writer from Harper's Weekly said, quote, although 900,000 people call Brooklyn home, they all write New York opposite their names in hotel registers when they travel. Essentially, they were intertwined already, practically, financially, socially. Another incredibly important selling point for Brooklynites was that, for all practical purposes, Brooklyn was running out of water, and Manhattan was swimming in it. Because, <laughs> essentially, Brooklyn was in the surrounding towns yes. of Kings County were getting their water from Long Island, from uh, places and, deeper into Long Island. Right, and from their own wells, which were kind of going dry. And with their booming population, they simply could not keep up with the water demands. In fact, many farmers Farmers and landowners in Long Island announced that they would simply refute, would turn off the spigot to Brooklyn if Brooklyn kept getting bigger and using up all the water. And look at what was happening across the river in New York, where the New Croton Aqueduct, which was just bringing in an unending supply of fresh water. And by the way, on whose commission a certain Andrew Haswell Green also sat. So he was on that. I mean, he was probably thinking of this expansion because when the Croton system was expanded in the 1890s, I mean, it was it certainly had its eye towards consolidation, of course. What Green proposed is that there would, of course, be pipes underneath the East River that would then transport that water over to Brooklyn. So Brooklyn would no longer need to rely on Long Island. It could rely on the same source that New Yorkers did. Though it would have been nice to have had an aqueduct, you know, if the aqueduct could have continued um, oh, right. over the river. Maybe they could have turned a little, like, old-style Roman bridge right. Uh, right around the East River. Or, or perhaps it could have been built into that new bridge that had opened up between the two cities. The Brooklyn Bridge, which, of course, is the most symbolic move yet to a possible consolidation. It opened in 1883 after many, many years. By the way, this is our 150th episode, and we're going, we're hitting a lot of subjects that we've done as podcasts, as the Croton Aqueduct was one, and the Brooklyn Bridge here. It was a symbolic union of these two cities. Making it easier than ever for people to live in, say, Brooklyn Heights or elsewhere in Brooklyn and, and work in, in Manhattan. But in the same way that it opened 
both worlds. In other senses, it was rather limiting. Like there were two separate transportation systems that didn't like speak to each other, for instance, um, because they were two separate cities. One more reason I wanted to mention, Greg, and this one seems kind of shallow or just sort of silly, was the the competitive nature of American cities. New Yorkers wanted their city to remain the largest and the most important city in the country. And they had a a young whippersnapper um, just (laughs) kind of like biting at their heels by the name of Chicago. Mm. Rapidly growing to become the second largest city by the 1880s. And of course, Chicago at about the same time was awarded something that New York wanted very badly. That would be the Columbian Exposition of 1893, the World's Fair of 1893, uh, one of the most important cultural events in American history. So many innovations came from there. So many of the greatest thinkers and architects created the park. And and the event also celebrated this idea of the imperial city as well. And here, New York was without one. But it wasn't just the, the title of largest city that they wanted. What if Chicago became more important economically or financially than New York? Consider what that would do to New York's land values, to New York's industries. If suddenly banks shut down in New York their headquarters and moved them to Chicago, if, and if banks did that, if factories did that, if headquarters moved to Chicago, that would do terrible things to the real estate in New York City. So in closing, mm-hmm. so in closing my case um, for the <laughs> consolidation, these are the main arguments that were advanced for the desperate need to enlarge this city, to mm-hmm. remain competitive, and to grow in a way that, that served its residents. It, it was the responsibility of the municipality to grow and to serve. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, 
began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Now, as I am now living in Brooklyn, let me take the case of many Brooklyn. You mean New York City? New York, well... In 1890, Mm -hmm. many Brooklynites were pushing back at this talk, this damaging talk. I was looking at a lot of old history books that were written kind of immediately after consolidation. So there was this bitterness dripping from the pages. One historian by the name of Harold Coffin Surrett says at the opening of a chapter, the movement to destroy Brooklyn's autonomy was older than the city itself. Mm. And then went on to elaborate on all the ways that New York was slowly chipping away at Brooklyn pride. Some cards were passed around Brooklyn, um, listing 12 reasons as to what the, why this was going to be marvelous for Brooklynites, including a reduction of tax rates, increased employment and wages, quote, a healthy stimulus to all branches of government, increased social prestige and civic pride, and then new life and vigor resulting from harmony. Well, one of those cards made its way into the Brooklyn Daily Eagle's office, who's always there to hurl an insult in this story, who then wrote, quote, the 12 reasons are 12 frauds. Well, so much for vigor and harmony. (laughs) There's little vigor. Vinegar, maybe, but no vigor. Vinegar Hill. So one thing to keep in mind, which is also important, is this, like so many things at this time, even so many things today, um, they often fell upon political lines, with the Republicans of the day being for consolidation, and the Democrats, and in particular Tammany Hall, being against consolidation. It was seen in Brooklyn that a lot of the pro-consolidation was coming from the moneyed elites of Brooklyn Heights, where a lot of the anti-consolidation were coming from the other areas. According to the Brooklyn Union in 1889, they thought the consolidation was never going to happen. Quote, the sentiment here is practically unanimous. And that is why Brooklynites are amused by the apparent serious consideration given to the matter in New York. Despite that condescending little snark (laughs) Uh by the eagle, it does seem surprising that the moneyed folk of Brooklyn Heights would be pro 
consolidation. Well, I, I would think that they would be the ones in their self-proclaimed city of churches and streets. You may be referring to the phrase city of homes and churches. Yes, that's right. Well, so so there's this, city of homes and churches. Well, there is this sustained illusion going on with Brooklyn, and it really is an illusion because a lot of the anti-consolidationists were sticking to this idea that Brooklyn was different in every way, just socially and morally, mm. from evil New York, full of immigrants and towering buildings and an impersonal lifestyle. When and Tammany Hall. And Tammany Hall. When, in fact, Brooklyn's had a huge immigrant population. Brooklyn was having buildings grow up very tall, and Brooklyn was getting very cosmopolitan. And, and it was the fourth largest city in the country. You mentioned Tammany Hall. One of the big beefs, of course, was New York's, let's admit, lousy record on good government and its long history of corrupt leaders and powerful political machines. But, I mean, Brooklyn had that as well, of course. Uh, In fact, some Brooklyn leaders were afraid that they would lose significant power and emerge and that their control of Brooklyn's financial coffers would be minimized by this, what they saw as a Republican effort. So everybody's kind of afraid, right, of giving up control. You've got two different cities with two city governments, two treasurers, two mayors. Exactly. They don't want to give up control. Someone's, someone's going to be let go or demoted. Many Brooklynites felt demeaned and cheated by New York. They felt like they were just being acquired, just another victim in New York's tainted ambition. Right. And we should point out again that this is a conversation about the consolidation of what is today's Bronx and Queens and Staten Island as well. Yet really, this big story, the big picture gets down to this difficult relationship between Manhattan or New York and Brooklyn. That's really what this whole story is about. Right. And but I will mention that there were like some of the villages like Flushing, like Jamaica, they did have similar concerns, although the biggest city in the Queens County was Long Island City, and they were the most pro for consolidation. Natural reasons, of course, because they were close to the water's edge and would benefit greatly from some plans that people were talking about, mm-hmm. about a possible link to Queens via a bridge. Uh, perhaps a Queensborough yes, bridge. Which would eventually be built, of course, within less than 20 years. Now, now there was a pro-consolidation group called the Consolidation League mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. In 1892, they proudly pranced through their city wearing these <laughs> badges on them that were inscribed the words CL, the initials for their group, and then underneath it, Greater New York, where that was what they were going to be called. Well, the next day, of course, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle caddily replied to these badges, quote, exactly the same words and letters could, could at a little expense, be stamped on chocolate caramels. <laughs> By eating them, the Consolidation League would, so to say, be able to assimilate the subject in many of its bearings. Again, the eagle has a way with words, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't it? it? In fact, the eagle would like, continually ring the alarm for anti-consolidation, and they would run daily on their editorial page a long list of which began, quote, Brooklyn is the city of home and churches. New York is the city of Tammany Hall and crime government. Government here is by a public opinion and for the public interest. If tied to New York, Brooklyn would be a Tammany suburb to be kicked, looted, and bossed as such. And it just went on and on and on. Well, they kind of had a point. (laughs) So here we have both sides basically howling their cases (laughs) into the winds Mm -hmm. and into anybody who will listen or take one of their pamphlets or eat one of their chocolates. Chocolates, yes. 
And already in May of 1890, Andrew Green was up at the state legislature pushing through um, a petition to create a commission to inquire into the expediency of consolidating the various municipalities of the state of New York, occupying the several islands in the harbor of New York. So that was the name of the petition. He was, of course, the chairman of the committee. And he went about making his case and he and, and launched into these great debates. There were all manner of stalling tactics that took place. <laughs> but finally, in February of 1894, he managed to push through a bill calling for a popular referendum on this subject. Finally, the people in these cities would be able to vote on whether or not to merge into one super city. So instead of just babbling back and forth and printing nasty things in newspapers, they could finally put it, put it to a vote. Right. Coming up for consolidation, the polling that was being done was coming back very <laughs> positive until they hit a bit of a snag. That same year, there was major corruption that was exposed uh, among Manhattan's politicians and the police. And this led to all kinds of investigations. The papers were just filled with stories of this corruption. And this is the famous Lexo Commission, which exposed Which was, which was hired just mm-hmm. to look into all of these corruption cases. So what this did, I think, was also really expose the fears that Brooklynites were having. Like, talk about bad timing, <laughs> you know? They're about to vote on this. They're, Brooklyn is getting on the side of, of consolidation, and then this happens. But regardless, in November of 1894, they had to have the vote. And the results of the plebiscite. Yes, of the plebiscite. Plebiscite. Mm-hmm. And the plebs of the, <laughs> the, the cities or villages there, thereof. On Manhattan Island, it was 96,938 for and 59,959 against. Pass. In Queens, 60% for. Pass. On Richmond later to become Staten Island, 5,531 for, 1,505 so, against. So passed there. And in the Bronx, it passed in most communities. Although I will say that in the two communities where it did not pass, um, one of them was the town of Yonkers, and one of them was the town of Mount Vernon. Both of them said no. As a result, they were no longer included in the rest of the consolidation plans, and so today they are separate cities. In fact, Yonkers is the fourth largest New York City, and Mount Vernon is the eighth largest, because they said no. And sashayed? Away, <laughs> but wh- but what about Brooklyn here? Brooklyn is an incredible story, Greg. It came down to sixty four thousand seven hundred forty four four mm-hmm. and sixty four thousand four hundred sixty seven against. It passed by two hundred and seventy seven <laughs> votes. Now I read that the ironic part about that is that it was right before this period that Brooklyn had annexed these other towns. So Gravesend, for instance, and right. Flatlands. Had they not done it, consolidation would have lost because a lot of the people in Brooklyn actually voted no, but many of the outlying areas obviously voted yes. So thank God they annexed those <laughs> yes. in. But hold off the champagne, Greg. Putting the cork back in the bottle. <laughs> because just because the, the voters passed it, just because it was a referendum and it passed, it did not become law. If anything, it impassioned 
the anti-consolidation forces more because you know it's it's bu- it's bureaucracy. There was still ways to stop this. People in Brooklyn, especially, felt cheated, and so they banded together a group of respectable residents, pastors, businessmen, civic leaders, and formed the quote League of Loyal Citizens. And they they managed to almost retake the entire tone of the conversation. And they yeah. they pushed it all the way up to Albany, and they they stormed up to Albany, and they they pushed it through the state house, derailed the vote, and they blocked consolidation from happening. And then in Brooklyn itself, they fired up all the anti-consolidation amongst the citizens by doing crazy things like they encouraged children with a $10 prize to write essays on the subject, quote, why Brooklyn should remain independent. There was even, Tom, I think you would have been involved with this, a song competition for the grand prize of $300 if you could write the the best anti consolidation song. The winning song was called Up With The Flag with such catchy (laughs) lyrics as our civic charter in the grave of ruin would these tricksters cast up with the flag our fathers gave and nail it to the mast. Meanwhile, the pro the pro consolidation forces were trying to rally because, of course, they were having these losses up in Albany. Uh, Andrew Green, in fact, f- rejected. I guess he, to use the nose analogy, thumbed his nose at the uh, League of Loyal Citizens by saying, "Quote." They wished to stay the wills of beneficent progress by a display of flags and banners, the din of brass bands and other claptrap to <laughs> capture the thoughtless and unwary. He also called it senile sentimentalism. <laughs> so he, he was away with words. He did. He, he was should get, have entered that contest. <laughs> he could have written a good song and then he could have destroyed it from within. Claptrap, indeed. <laughs> So into this whole mix, into this, oh my God, what happened situation. So into this whole mix steps the Republican boss, Thomas Collier Platt, in 1896. And for his own reasons, probably his own desire to overtake New York politics with the Republican Party and to instill the Republican Party as the leaders of this expanded city, pushed the consolidation bill through the state government. His bill stated that Green's Commission's plans would stand and would go into effect on January 1st, 1898. And this was not popular with many people. The, the, the mayors of Brooklyn and New York both were against the fact that he was trying to push this back through, through Albany. Right, he almost flipped New York to being anti-consolidation because of the method in which this was being done. And still, he just kept pushing it through. And on April 22nd, 1896, it passed. And the governor signed it on May 11th, 1896. And everybody was exhausted. (laughs) And then this new city would be faced with this monumental task of writing a new charter, which is basically a new city constitution, a new governing document. How would this work logistically fine they're going mm-hmm. to merge things in but there are borders to be drawn there are names to be given there are municipal governments that have to be figured out what's to become of the mayor of brooklyn or new york or richmond so a commission of leaders lawyers were brought together and passed on may 5th 1897 a new charter that the governor signed and it proclaimed that the city's counties and boroughs were the same. In in this sense, the word borough means a subdivision of the city, mm-hmm. whereas a county is a subdivision of, of a the state. state. Right. And each of these boroughs would elect its own borough presidents who would 
act kind of like the local mayors. The executive branch of the city would be led by a single mayor. So how did they celebrate this major event? Because, I mean, December 31st of that year before must – it's not no ordinary New Year's Eve celebration right. here. Well, remember about three hours ago when we started this conversation <laughs> yes. when I said that people were kind of ambivalent ab- mm-hmm. about this? There was a confusion, you know? Some people were still for it. Some people were still against it. Many people were exhausted by a fight that went on for too long. So people didn't really know how to celebrate it, and there was no real official celebration that was planned. After all, Brooklynites were feeling like they were getting kind of hosed here. They might not have been in the mood to celebrate the seeding of their their city to another body. And some people just thought, what are we really celebrating? Is n- Maybe nothing's really happening. The New York Tribune called it, quote, the greatest experiment in municipal government that the world has ever seen. But meanwhile, the outgoing mayor, William Strong, proposed that the city hold a funeral service. (laughs) So So, there were a lot of mixed messages from everyone. Luckily, though, William Randolph Hearst was not a man for ambiguity. (laughs) He's one for a party. And he is the owner of the New York Evening Journal. Realizing that nobody was going to do anything or throw any kind of party, he decided to put on his own party. The journal will sponsor it. And he was a big fan of fireworks. So he bought just cartloads, trainloads of fireworks. But he paid thousands of dollars of his own for this. He organized entertainments, including, you know, civic bands, people marching, a bicycle club was involved. I wonder if the Up With The Flag song was performed by any of these bands, probably in like an ironic minor key. On a sad trombone. (laughs) So thousands of people gathered in the snow and snowy rain mix that that December 31st, 1897, up in Union Square, cavorting about in the streets. Anyway, eventually this big, messy celebration Mm -hmm. wound up down at City Hall. And there, at the stroke of midnight, with fireworks in the air, all eyes turned toward the flagpole. At that precise moment, San Francisco's Mayor James Phelan sent an electric (laughs) impulse. He pushed a button, and an electric impulse raced across this great nation of ours. It's almost like it was collecting the spirit of America. Shooting across the nation, (laughs) up the flagpole, sending the new flag of New York City, a united imperial city, up the flagpole, To be displayed for all at the stroke of midnight. That's how you throw a party, Greg. Uh, Okay, but were they doing the same thing in Brooklyn? No, there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. (laughs) Over by Brooklyn Borough Hall. They were celebrating less enthusiastically. We are now one city, one city of five boroughs. But one little interesting postscript is, of course, in creating new this borough of Queens, of course, they need to make a dividing line of where Queens ends and Long Island begins. Right, because they didn't have a handy river to, to go by. No, no. So it wasn't until February of 1899 that the official boundary line demarking New York and Long Island was officially laid on the easternmost border. Um, here's the funny story about it. Apparently, the original survey of the land wasn't, was rather sloppy. That had been done in the early 1890s. In fact, the New York Times says it was, quote, from a map which appears to have been the result of anything but an actual survey. (laughs) So because of this shoddy survey, a line had in the town of Hempstead 
um, in Long Island, cut off a schoolhouse from where most of his students went to school. So they were on the other side, on the New York side, most of the students, but the schoolhouse was on the Long Island side, which, of course, they can't mix school boards, so that made things very unusual. So they had to redraw the lawn, the boundary line. Couldn't they just push the schoolhouse a little? They didn't have to because they found out that it was it was shoddy surveying. They had to go back to the original line where they based the boundary and on the south side it was it was based on a channel that was between the Rockaway Islands and Shelter Island and that was their guide for the mm-hmm. original survey. But by 1899, the channel had dried up, and it was just a bunch of sandbanks. So they literally had to employ the services of a bunch of old fishermen who could remember where that channel was. They could finally resurvey the line, and wouldn't you know it, it was actually wrong, and the schoolhouse was now on the New York side. So New York actually gained 700 feet Oh. Um, in that resurveying, so what, they three hundred and fifty students. So <laughs> three hundred and fifty students who were very sad that day when they found out they had to go back to school. But more than just a schoolhouse, New York would, of course, gain a lot because of consolidation. In fact, some of the grandest plans that New York ever conceived, 50 years of plans from the construction of the subway to, of course, all the immense projects of Robert Moses, all of these were possible because you had now a network of five boroughs and you could come up with these grand concepts for a city. The very first mayor of Consolidated New York was Robert Van Wyck, a Tammany Hall approved candidate, which I think is kind of funny that that consolidation was a Republican idea. Right. So it seems ironic that, yeah, the Republicans would push this thing through and then lose the first mayoral elections to the Democrats who were anti-consolidation. Right. Well, Tammany Hall in particular were freaked out and they did everything in their power to try to retain some sort of leadership position so that they could keep a grasp on civic power. It also helped that the Republicans, who seemed a little bit over-enthusiastic that year, and confident, ran two candidates. There were two Republicans essentially split the vote, and in was elected Robert Van Wyck who unfortunately is known basically for a scandal that's disgraced his name called the Ice Trust Scandal. And for a very popular expressway. A very heavily trafficked, slow-moving Van Wyck expressway. Correct. Of course, this also created the borough president. So each borough then had its own leader. Now, one might think that the position of borough president would be powerful indeed. Uh, A stepping stool, in fact, even to become mayor of New York City. Absolutely. But but in fact, only two borough mayors in the history of New York have ever been, have ever gone on to mayor. That would be Robert Wagner and David Dinkins. Mm Mm-hmm. Although the position has given us such forceful personalities as Brooklyn's Marty Markowitz. Of course. I love Marty. And then Scott Stringer. In Manhattan. Well, in Manhattan. Generally speaking, the, the new, sort of new boroughs, the ones that were created by this merge, would rise immediately. The Bronx, of course, would develop very rapidly. And in the, by the 1920s, with the birth of the subway and with the development of the Queensboro Bridge, Queens would experience a huge rise in population by the 1920s. In essence, consolidation prepared New York for the 20th century, in which it would become one of the greatest and most powerful cities in the world. Now, whatever happened to Richmond? It's good. We're going to end this the talk of consolidation, I think, with this little story, with the, with the tale of Richmond, which we're still calling it Richmond. In fact, it wasn't until 1975 that the borough was officially changed to the borough of Staten Island. 
but by that time, of course, Staten Island was in vogue, where people were already right. referring it to it as that. Yes. Now, in recent years, and by that I mean like in the past few decades, Staten Island was has been rather unhappy with consolidation. And I can see that perfectly. Uh, residents have felt left out of the city, like they were like an unwanted child of this union, that they were the least wanted. You know, to be fair, they were disconnected from the city for, for decades until finally with the arrival of the Verrazano Narrow Bridge, which finally connected it to Brooklyn. But that was many generations after the birth of consolidation here. And, you know, notably, Staten Island was the home of the world's largest garbage dump for many years, the fresh kills. So you painted a really rosy <laughs> picture here, Greg. Yeah, so finally, so th- there was renewed talk of s- actually seceding mm-hmm. from the consolidated New York, from greater New York, to make it less great mm-hmm. um, by, by leaving it. So sure enough, in 1993, there was a non-binding referendum on the docket to vote to whether they would stay or whether they would go. And Staten Island voted, yes, we want to leave. We want to we want to break off from Greater New York. But can they do that? As, uh, you said it's non-binding, but it seems like the city and the state would have to give it the go-ahead. I think the Staten Island would have pushed it. They would not have been part of the city today had it not been for something else that was on the ballot. And that was, of course, the election of the new mayor. The result of that election was that one. Rudolph Giuliani, who then, to ease the fears of Staten Island, he closed Fresh Kills Landfill, and he followed up on a promise of making the Staten Island Ferry for free, because up mm. until this point, uh, you did have to pay to get on it. So since there were so few ways of getting off of Staten Island, uh, you know, it was an extra burden. So, so that was removed as well. So there hasn't been any real rise in secession talk still, but it is very interesting to note that 20 years ago this year, they did vote to dissolve the consolidation of Greater New York. Well, and that brings us to where we are today without Staten Island uh, pulling out of the city and with us wrapping up our 150th episode. And Tom, I'm, I have to say thank you and I am, I'm grateful to have spent these 150 episodes and we will have many more to go. Greg, it has been a great pleasure to sit here with you as well to scheme about new ideas <laughs> when we're off tape. And so many hidden corners of New York City yet to explore. So cheers. Now, I have a few exciting announcements. We are doing some expansion and some changes. It is exciting time to be a Bowery Boy and to be a Bowery Boy's listener, I hope. Now, first of all, later this month, so I think in the next two or three weeks. And we're, we're talking April of oh, 2013. April 2013. Brand new walking tour. And the journey that we will be going on in this new audio walking tour is, drumroll please... Why, of course, the Bowery. Oh, of course. So the Bowery walking tour that will be out later this month for purchase at iTunes and on our page. There'll be a place where you can buy it from that, there as well. On the blog, we have a book of the month club. We're I'm pulling pulling little, an Oprah. Pulling an Oprah here um, where we're recommending one book that has a New York history theme, but it can just have like just indirectly New York history because there's so many great history books. So this month's selection, which I will announce, is a book by Matthew Goodman, and it's called 80 Days, Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bislin's History-Making Race Around the World. So go to the blog next week for review and follow-up stories about that. 
We're going to have some merchandise for sale um, within the next month or so. So check back on the blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, to help us celebrate our 150th episode with some swag. And I think it would also be appropriate, Greg, just to say a word of thanks to the people over at National Public Radio and to Caitlin Dickerson, who did a wonderful job on producing a, a short segment that ran on us about three weeks ago now. Yeah, it was, it was, it was extraordinary. I mean, I, it's brought a lot of new listeners to the show. A lot of you are probably listening to um, a live episode for the first time. And so because of that, so we want to thank them wholeheartedly. And thank you all for, for jumping into the show here. Finally, I want to add, you can also follow us on Twitter, Bowery Boys, because starting this week... I'll be doing my annual, what I call mad tweeting, tweeting during New York history themed shows, sort of in progress, little like trivia bits and everything. Mm, and of live course, live tweets, yes. So that'll begin this Sunday with the premiere of Mad Men on AMC. And then a little bit later this summer, I will also be live tweeting during BBC America's TV show Copper, which is set in 19th century Five Points. And if you haven't done so already, please become our friend on Facebook. Just look us up. We're the Bowery Boys. So on to 151. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Mm-hmm.